Uh, and the rest of you, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll be in chapter 24 this morning, starting in verse 13. Uh, and I'd just like to echo John's thoughts uh, on soccer nights. Uh, the kids make it happen. And uh, it was a beautiful uh, week just to see uh, so many kids in Medford and Medford families coming together uh, to enjoy a great time together. And, uh, and also, we want to thank our volunteers. So from Damon to Chris, uh, John, Carrie, uh, just everyone who made it happen. Redemption Hill, I think we had about 60 volunteers just from our church and others that came in. So uh, it, was, it was just a massive effort and one that we're very, uh, very thankful for. Well, uh, for everyone who appreciates a good story, you know how important the end of the story is. So it doesn't matter how the introduction hooks you in, how riveting the characters may be, or how you know, many twists and turns surface throughout the tale. If the end of the story fails to bring it all together, then the story ultimately fails. And what we're going to see here today is that in 24 chapters, Luke has taken us on a magnificent journey through the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And now we have arrived at the end of the story. We've plowed through the gospel of Luke in about 40 weeks at Redemption Hill to really seek to understand wh who Jesus was, what his mission is, and what that means for us. And so if this is your first Sunday at Redemption Hill and you missed the previous, you know, 38 or 39 sermons, don't worry about it, okay, because it really is all summarized beautifully here at the end of the story. The events of the last week of Jesus' life that we call the the Passion Week, uh, must have had a dizzying effect on the followers of Christ. It began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with people shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Then we see Jesus teaching in the temple, sharing his wisdom with all of the people. Then moving to the night of Passover where he celebrated the last supper with his disciples, which then quickly transpired into his betrayal by one of his own disciples, Judas, his arrest, and then his crucifixion. We saw last week that Jesus was buried in an empty tomb that a man named Joseph of Arimathea owned. And then there were reports that this Jesus who was buried in this tomb could be alive because the tomb is now empty. Can you imagine experiencing all of this in one week? I mean, I know we have a lot going on here in Boston right now. Uh, the the Serenayov arraignment was this week. Whitey Bulger's case is ongoing. Aaron Hernandez murder cases is, is happening. And, and while all of this is going on in Boston, we can, we can only imagine that the events that were going on in Jerusalem only had a much, much greater buzz about them. Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet sent from God, this miracle worker was crucified as a criminal and now they're saying he's alive. 
And so it's during this swirl of events. On Sunday, the, the morning that the women went to the tomb and found it empty, and Peter goes to the tomb and finds it empty, there are two disciples walking home out of Jerusalem back to their village of Emmaus. And what we're going to find here is that these two followers were reflecting on all of the events of the week. Now, this is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, not only because of the way it's narrated and the great irony that it contains, but more so for the content that it holds. And so if you would read, we're going to read verses 13 to 35 together as we jump into the, the gospel of Luke, chapter 24. So Luke writes, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
The first thing I want us to do this morning as we dive into this story is understand that all the scriptures point to the redeeming work of Christ. All the scriptures point to the redeeming work of Christ. At some levels, it's not hard to imagine what was going on in this conversation. After all, they had just experienced a week that they would be talking about from weeks to, for weeks to come. So as they're walking this seven-mile road, what would have taken probably the distance from walking from Boston, downtown Boston, to Woburn, they are reflecting and discussing all of these things. And Luke tells us that they were filled with sorrow and, and with confusion and with doubt. And so they're, they're discussing all of these things. And, and did you catch the story? It says that there was a third person who walked up behind them to journey with them. And this was not uncommon in that day because people wanted to travel together so that they could be more safe as they journeyed along roads that were often filled with robbers and thieves. So this third person, Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus, comes up behind them and he says, what are you discussing as you walk along the road? And they turn to him, knowing that he has just come out of Jerusalem, and they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know what has gone on there in these days? And Jesus, begging them for an explanation, says, what things? And then it's pretty awesome that these two disciples, in their reply, give us what really are the key elements of the gospel story. So if you're new to Christianity, what they report in verses 19 through 24 serve as a great introduction to the key elements of the gospel. We see in, verses, uh, in verse 19, uh, the life of Christ, his life and ministry. What does it say there? It says, Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. So we've seen in the gospel of Luke, Jesus performing all of these amazing miracles. The centurion servant in Luke chapter seven was healed. Jairus's daughter in Luke chapter eight was raised from the dead. Jesus in Luke chapter nine takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and with those five loaves and two fish, he feeds 5,000 people. The miracles of Christ, the deeds of Christ are written all over the pages of the Gospel of Luke, and they are fulfilling prophecies again and again and again to say that the Messiah would come and he would open the eyes of the blind, he would make the lame walk, he would cause the deaf to hear, and the good news would be preached to the poor, which takes us to not only the deeds of Christ, but the words of Christ. Some of Jesus' greatest teaching is contained in this gospel. Love your enemies. Be rich toward God. Be a neighbor, just to not to the people that you know, look like you and talk like you and that you like to be around, but be a neighbor to all people. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. That's what the Good Samaritan is all about. We have the story of the prodigal son, which is really more about the prodigal father who represents our prodigal God, who lavishes his love on us when we are quite unlovely. All of these teachings are found throughout this gospel. And then what we need to understand about the teaching of Christ is that it's not only that he taught these things, but he fulfilled his teaching perfectly. Everything that Jesus taught his disciples to do, he did them completely. 
And this is good news for us. Don't miss this is part of the gospel. We needed a perfect sacrifice in Christ to go to the cross. His active righteousness, if you will. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. We needed him to be the perfect sacrifice in order that he might die for us in our place. So verse 19 tells us of of the life and ministry of Christ. Then verse 20 and 21 talk to us about his death. And in these verses, we see Luke's understanding of the death of Jesus. There was human agency on the one hand, but there was a divine plan on the other. Look back at verse 20. It says, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So there is no doubt who killed Jesus. The Jews were responsible and the Romans were responsible, but both the Jews and the Romans were only fulfilling the divine plan that God had ordained since the creation of the world, before the creation of the world, that he would send his son to die in our place to redeem us. So, you know, I see crosses all over the place when I'm hanging out around Medford. Do you guys see crosses when you're out and about in the city? You know, people wear crosses on their necklaces. People have cross tattoos on their shoulders, on their back, all over the place, right? People, people wear these crosses uh, on, their, on their bodies. People dangle crosses from their rear view mirrors. I mean, everyone is, is cool with the cross, but what I fear is that people don't really understand what the cross means. Otherwise, they may not, you know, choose to, to wear it all, all over themselves and hang it and display it so prominently. You, you say, Tanner, what, what does the cross mean? This is a great question, by the way, to ask uh, those around you. What do you believe about the cross? What does the cross mean to you? Well, in six words, let me give you what the cross means to me which I believe is what the cross means. Because he died, I have life. Because he died, I have life. Because Jesus died on the cross in my place, took on my sin, my punishment, the wrath of God that I deserved, I now can receive his righteousness and be forgiven of my sin and freed to live my life now for God, both a full and abundant life now and eternal life with God forever. That's what the cross is all about. And so they're talking about his life. They're talking about his death. Cleopas even hints at the resurrection in verses 21 through 24, which if Jesus was raised, remember we said last week, it validates, it it proves everything that he said, everything that he did, his death was true and powerful and good and able to change us entirely. But we've seen here that these disciples, they still carried doubt. There was disappointment in their response. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they weren't fully convinced that Jesus was the true Messiah, that he was fully alive. The the resurrection seemed too amazing, too miraculous for them. So how does Jesus respond It says that he basically rebukes them in verse 25. And he says, oh, foolish ones, slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then it says in verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained from the scriptures all things concerning himself. Now, I don't want you to miss these words of Christ here because they have massive implications for how we read and interpret our Bibles. Jesus is saying from the very beginning, from Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, okay, the Pentateuch. He's saying as early as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all pointing to him through the historical books and the prophets, the major and minor prophets, to the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job. All of it is pointing to Christ. So while we have in the Bible 66 books that make up the Bible, we actually have one book, one story that is giving a comprehensive look at the person of Christ. While we have roughly 40 different authors that wrote the the different books of the Bible, ultimately the Bible says there is one author behind it all, the Holy Spirit, who is inspiring men to pen these words as God gives them the ability. While we have many themes in the Bible, many plot lines that run through, ultimately they all culminate in the person of Christ. So this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. All of the themes find their resolution in him. All of the um, shadows that we find in the types and the antitypes in the Old Testament find their substance in Christ. So can you imagine this? These two disciples are walking down the road, this dusty road, and Jesus catches up with them and he starts going from Genesis down to the Psalms, down through the prophets, all of the things concerning himself. As someone has written, he began to tell them how that he was the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. He is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. He is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him into slavery and now uses his power to save them. He is the true and better Moses, the leader of the people of God, who mediates a new covenant and who leads his people on a better exodus into the forever promised land. Is this good news or what? Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they did not lift a finger to accomplish it. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, the true shepherd, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread, the true temple, the prophet of all prophets, the great high priest, the king of kings. The Bible is all about him. It's really not about us. So Jesus unfolds from the Old Testament. By the way, probably next year, if not next year, the year after that, we're going to do a a series through the Old Testament and we're just going to show how it all points to Christ. He is the theme. He is the centerpiece of the Bible. So we need to read our Bibles both uh, forward and backward, if you will, okay? If we don't understand the Old Testament, we won't get a sense of, of all that Christ is doing in the new, but if we don't understand the new, then the old doesn't make perfect sense. 
So let's dig into our Bibles. And, and I hope that we'll be like Cleopas and, and this other disciple because it, they said after they see who Jesus is and he vanishes it before their sight, what does he say? They, they, they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? I mean, when you hear the gospel, does it do something within you? Does it evoke a sense of excitement and joy that these things are true, that Christ truly is alive, that we can have life in him? I hope that as we encounter the scriptures, that our hearts will burn within us. It should fill us with, with great passion and vitality when we see all that Christ is for us. So these disciples, it says, at that hour, in light of everything that has happened, we can only imagine that we would respond the same way. It says that in that hour, they run back to Jerusalem only to find that Jesus has appeared to Peter. So now it's all coming together. together. The fireworks are going off. Jesus is alive. And so we see then in verse 36, look at verse 36. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So once again, Jesus is appearing to his disciples and he's saying, look, you are not hallucinating hallucinating, all right, which is one of the, 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 the counter arguments against the resurrection of Christ. He's saying, you're not hallucinating. I have flesh and blood. A spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. And he says, this truth fulfills all of the scriptures and it can make all of the difference in the world for each and every one of us. If Jesus is alive, then we can also have life in him. He is the deposit, if you will, guaranteeing that we all one day will live forever, spending either eternity with God or eternity apart from God. And so it's little wonder that when we read the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the gospel of Luke, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, that the, the disciples, the apostles are preaching not just Jesus, but the death and resurrection of Jesus. Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. Resurrection, 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 resurrection. They're highlighting the fact that Jesus lives and sharing this good news because their tragedy had turned to triumph in a moment. 
So redemption is found in Christ. All of the scriptures point to this reality. Now, what does that mean for us? If this is true, then how should we respond? Well, we see that then in verses 47 and 48. Not only has the Christ suffered, and on the third day he would rise from the dead, but what else? Jesus, it says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So my second encouragement for us this morning is to take God's redemption to the world as your greatest mission in life. Take God's redemption to the world as your greatest mission in life. Let me ask you, what would you say is your greatest mission in life? We do live in America after all, so perhaps for for some of us in here, much of our life is guided by what a lot of people call the American dream. Get a good job. Make sure that that job earns a decent paycheck so that you can pay a few bills, right? Or maybe all your bills. That would probably be a good idea, right? Yeah. Have a family. Maybe buy a house. Perhaps buy a car. You know, all of this kind of is, is what we're chasing after. And maybe some of you would say, well, well you know, I, I get that and that's necessary. Yes, have a job, pay the bills. But, you know, I'm after more noble pursuits in life, greater causes, um, promoting literacy, helping victims of abuse, trying to, to restore health to those who are sick. Whatever, whatever your pursuit in life is, it should be celebrated if it's a noble cause. But what we find in the Bible is that Jesus invites us to the greatest mission under the sun. Not only knowing him, but spreading this good news about him so that others can experience the life that we've experienced in him. So I think we could agree, if Jesus really rose from the dead, and if the eternal destinies of people ride on their response to him, then it's a pretty important responsibility and privilege to go take this message to the world and tell people that they can have life in Christ, just like we found that we can have life in Christ. So what I wanted to do is give you uh, four components of the mission of Christ that we see just in these two verses, okay? Number one, the mission of Christ goes forth in his name. When we say that the mission of Christ goes forth in his name, what we are saying is that the mission of Christ goes forth in his authority, okay? So it's not our own resources. It's not our own ingenuity. It's not how many many clever words that we can produce, okay? It's the authority of Christ that gives weight to our mission, and it's the authority of Christ that changes people's lives and can change our cities and our world because of who he is. This is what I love when we go to Acts chapter three and we find out that Peter heals this lame man who had been unable to walk his whole life. He was a beggar. He waited at the temple gate hoping that people would give him some spare change so that he could make it in life. He couldn't get a job obviously because he was lame. And so the, the, the beggar asked for some, some money and Peter says, well, silver or gold, I don't have, but one thing I give in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. The man rises up, gets up and walks. He's walking around, leaping, praising God. And it says that this, this lame beggar clung to Peter and all of the people ran to him. They were amazed. They marveled at what happened. 
And what does Peter say? He says, why do you stare at us and wonder as if it is by our own power or piety that this man has walked today? It is not by our power, but it is through faith in the name of Jesus Christ this man has been made well. And so listen, I understand that sometimes it can be intimidating to share our faith with others, even though as we're growing in Christ, this should be the natural reflex, the desire of our hearts to tell other people about Jesus. We all have some friends and family who don't believe in Christ, right? And maybe you're here today and you're, you're, you're figuring this Christianity deal out. But, but here's the, 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 the beautiful part, okay? We can have confidence as we go forth in his name because the authority of Christ is big enough for the mission of Christ. All right, don't, don't miss that. The authority of Christ is big enough for the mission of Christ. So that's why Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew, okay, here's the Great Commission of Luke. The Great Commission of Matthew doesn't start with go and make disciples, okay? If that's how you answer on a Bible quiz, you're wrong, all right? How does the Great Commission start? It starts with these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So we don't go in our own strength. We don't go in our own power with our own words. We go in the authority of Christ to share his message and his love with the world. We proclaim the message in his name, but what is the goal of our mission? The goal of our mission is that people would see who Jesus is and that they would respond favorably to him. And this response must necessarily include repentance. So the mission of Christ calls us to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind, okay, a mindset that leads to a change of heart and the change of life. So, so when someone encounters the message of Jesus, they will either receive it or reject it. And if it is received, then that is showing us that they now have a different view of themselves. They have a different view of the world in which we live. They have a different view of our need before God. And we have a different view of how God has met that need in Christ. That then changes everything about us. So now, though we once lived for ourselves in our own way, now we are seeking in everything to live for God. Though maybe once we thought we could earn our way to God by our own good works, now we see that we must trust in the finished work of Christ in order to be with God in heaven forever. So there is repentance, there is a change, a transformation that happens from the inside out. And when someone truly repents and places their faith in Christ, then we see that the mission of Christ also grants us forgiveness. And this is good news. I don't know if any of you carry guilt in your life. Maybe you feel guilty before God, guilty before other people. I want you to consider this. If, if you just look back at your, the last week of your life, and if you want to, you know, even depress yourself further, you know, just look back at your whole life. And every time you failed to live out God's commands in your life, just imagine that, that each time you were given a brick. 
Every one of your sins, every, every one of our evil thoughts, our, our, our misguided words, our, our, our lying, our lust, our, all of that, our pride. Just imagine that each time that that welled up in our hearts, which if you're like me, it's multiple times a day, you're building a wall. And this wall, if that is representing each one of your sins, is surely longer than you're able to see, higher than you would be able to scale, thicker than you would be able to cross. Now what happens in the gospel is this, is that God takes the wrecking ball of his grace and love, and because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, God demolishes the wall so that we might be reconciled back with God. He forgives us. He wipes our slate clean. Isaiah says, though your sins be like crimson, they stand out. They're they're, they're clear to everyone. Now they can be washed white as snow. So if, if you receive the work of Christ, then God can forgive you. He will forgive you of all of your sin. And it's a simple, listen, if you have not experienced the forgiveness that Christ offers you, it's as easy as seeing your need for God, admitting that you have sin in your life and that sin separates you from God and crying out and asking God to forgive you. That's, that's what the gospel does. It shows us our sin. It shows us that Christ is a great savior and that God can forgive us through him. So I hope that you have found that forgiveness that the mission of Christ grants us. And because of this, this mission must go to all nations. Number four, the mission must go to all nations. One of the things that I love about soccer nights is not only how it brings Medford together, but we find that people from all over the world live in our city and then it brings everyone together. So let me just kind of rattle off a few countries that were represented at soccer nights. This is not a comprehensive list, but these are uh, people that I met this week. People from Iraq, Lebanon, the Philippines, Nepal, India, Bangladesh, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Brazil, Venezuela, Ireland, Portugal, Liberia, Rwanda, and the list could go on and on and on. That's all represented in our city. Now, what I love about Christ and what I love about Christianity, some people will charge Christianity with being too exclusive. There's only one way to God, okay? Which I'm on board with that because all the other religions of the world say that we must earn our way to God. Christianity says it's by God's grace that we're accepted, okay? So I'm in with Christianity for that reason alone. But Christianity is not simply exclusive in that we must get to God through Jesus, but I would contend that Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world because this gospel is a gospel for all people. It doesn't matter what continent you're from, what country you're from, the gospel is spreading all over the world and this gospel is for you. So this is why we pray every time we gather on Sundays for the world, the globe. We pray for Kuwait. Why do we pray for Kuwait? Because we want the gospel to go to Kuwait, right? We want want people to know about Jesus. 
This is why we have summer missionaries scattered all over our country and all over the world because we want to spread this good news about Jesus Christ. And what the book of Revelation, okay, that 66th book of the Bible says is that one day people from every tribe, language, nation will gather together and they will dwell with God forever. So if you're in Christ, that is your destiny So why not be about the business of bringing those people in now? Be about the mission of Christ. And then finally, in verse 49, we see how this mission must go forth. The last encouragement for us this morning is to go fulfill the mission in the power of God's spirit. So we see from verse 49, What does it say? And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you you are clothed with power from on high. So here's the good news. Jesus gives us a commission, a command to take the gospel to the world. But he doesn't just give us a command without the power to fulfill that command. Do you see that? So he, so he says, I'm going to give you my spirit, and your spirit, my spirit's going to dwell in you, and my spirit is going to empower you to do the very thing that I've asked you to do. Ephesians 1.13 spells this out. It says that in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I love the way that, that Jesus says this here. It says that we are clothed with God's spirit. Okay, so if you want to think, you know, apparel right now, it's not like a summer tank top, okay, that just like barely, barely covers us, okay, the tank top is back in style, okay, I don't know what happened, but it came, it made a comeback, all right, so if you're rocking a tank top this summer, know that you're in vogue, apparently, all right, but, but, but we're not getting the picture of a tank top here, okay, we're talking like New England blizzard, layered up, barely can see, out of your eyes, just covered, clothed completely, this is the kind of power that God gives us, he clothes us with his power, he gives us everything we need to fulfill the mission, and so I love Augustine's prayer, he says, command whatever you will, but give what you command, Command whatever you will, but give what you command. In other words, we're saying to God, God, you can ask me to do whatever it is that you want me to do, but if you're going to ask me to do it, then I need you to give me the resources and power to make it happen. And this is exactly what Christ does. He gives us what we need to fulfill his mission. So listen, as a church, Redemption Hill Church, If we want to be a great church, we will not be a great church unless we are filled with the Spirit and empowered by Him to be His witnesses in the world. If you want to be a great Christian, you will not be a fruitful Christian unless the power of God dwells in you daily and fills you up so that you might live for Him. I love what David Platt says. He says, The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel to the nations today may be the attempt of the church of God to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. Not the self-indulgent immorality of our culture, but the self-sufficient mentality of the church. So let me ask you, what is holding you back from being about the greatest mission under the sun? To follow Christ is to follow him anywhere, 
Is there any person in your life that you would say, man, I, I just, I can't share the gospel with them? Is there any place in the world that you would say, I, I can't go there to tell others about Jesus? According to Christ here, we have the power that we need to fulfill his mission. We exist to know God and to make him known among all the peoples of the world. This is what Luke is getting at at the end of his gospel. This is the call, okay? To join the mission of Christ in the power of Christ, motivated by the work of Christ. That's the call. Join the mission of Christ and the power of Christ, motivated by the work of Christ. So I think it would be appropriate to conclude our series through the Gospel of Luke the way that Luke concludes his Gospel. Look back in verse 50. It says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So when we experience the risen Christ in our life, it will necessarily move us to worship him and not just worship him, but worship him with great joy. So I hope that you know who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and the life that we can have in him to be about his mission in the world and to worship him with great joy. Most of the time, I think people, when they come to the Gospels, especially if they are new to, to the Bible and Christianity, most of the time people probably read the Gospels with the, the kind of aim of forming an opinion about Jesus. But what I think we see through the Gospel of Luke is it's not so much about us informing an opinion about Christ as what Christ wants to do with us. So how is God at work in your life? I want you to listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis and ask God to show you how you need to respond today. Lewis writes, What are we to make of Christ? This question that is often asked. There is no question of what we can make of him, it is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. The things he says are very different from what any other teacher has said. Others say this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But he says, I am the truth and the way and the life. He says, no man can reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life and you will be inevitably ruined. Give yourself away and you will be saved. He says, if you are ashamed of me, if when you hear this call, you turn the other way, I also will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it is your eye, pull it out. If it is your hand, cut it off. If you put yourself first, you will be last. Come to me, everyone who is carrying a heavy load. I will set that right. Your sins, all of them are wiped out. I can do that. I am rebirth. I am life. Eat me, drink me. I am your food. And finally, 
Do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. That is the issue. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would see this great issue that the Gospel of Luke has raised for us, that life is found in Christ, that we can have this life, we can can have the divine life living within us through faith in him. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that, that has not embraced Christ as the Savior and Lord of their life, that they would just call on you right now, that they would do it now and they experience the joy that comes from following Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would make us a church that is on mission with you, that we would be about your mission, and that we would be empowered by you to fulfill the mission that you've set before us so that you might be praised among all the peoples of the world. Father, we love you. We're grateful for your truth that changes us day by day. We ask that you would do it again. In Jesus' name, amen.